What's up, community of faith? How are we? How are we doing? Um, I hope your weekend is going great. Uh, we are celebrating mothers this weekend. We're so thankful for the impact, the influence that you've had in all of our lives. Um, but we're continuing in this series called In Sickness and in Health. And I don't know about you, but I know that in my household, being stuck at home with my family has been really, really good. But there's also been some times of tension. There's been some times where it's been a little bit crazy. There may or may not have been a fight or two yesterday, um, but there's been a lot of conflict as well. Um, I, my boys have jumped back into the Fortnite phenomenon over the last couple of weeks. And if you don't know anything about Fortnite, it's an online game where you can play with people all over the world. And so the way that it works though is you join these teams of four. Well, I have two boys and oftentimes they'll get a text message or a phone call and somebody's inviting them to play Fortnite and it never fails. There's always three friends inviting my two boys to jump into a game of four with them. So there's always an odd man out. And I can always tell when that happens because the volume begins to go up. I hear things being thrown. I hear yelling and shouting and conflict has just gotten out of control upstairs. Uh, we didn't fight over Fortnite when maybe we were children. We fought over things like shotgun, getting the front seat of the vehicle. We fought over who got to use the landline because back in those days, there was one phone call that could happen at the same time in a house unless you were one of those lucky families that had two landlines. But we have conflict that exists. Even last night, my wife and I decided that we were gonna go get Whataburger. And I love Whataburger. I just feel like a true Texan when I can have a good cheeseburger from Whataburger. And so we made an online order, we picked it up, we got home and I opened up my burger and I was incredibly disappointed because when I looked at my burger, it was missing something, something valuable and important, a slice of cheese. And I was devastated. I was frustrated. I looked at my wife and I said, how could you forget the cheese? And she said, doesn't it just come with the cheese? I was like, no, you got to ask for the cheese. You know, and so we had this little confrontation at the dinner table over a slice of cheese because I was disappointed. And of course, she ultimately responded like most of us would probably respond when we're accused of something ridiculous like that. She goes, next time you can order it yourself. The truth is, is that during this quarantine, we have struggled with some things. There has been some conflict that maybe has even led to some arguments and some fights and some unfortunate dialogues that we've had with each other. Maybe it's with our spouse, it's with our kids, it's with some of the closest relationships that we've been surrounded with over the last several weeks, maybe even the last couple of months. And so what I want to do today is I want us to, to kind of diagnose where that comes from. And then I want us to have uh, maybe some very clear steps that we can take as we begin to navigate conflict because conflict is inevitable. It's going to happen. It is just part of living life together with other people in relationships. But conflict doesn't always have to be destructive. It doesn't always have to be damaging because we all struggle with conflict in different ways. There's different ways that we all handle conflict. Some of us are the peacemakers. And so at all costs, you're doing everything you can just to make the conflict, make the arguing, make the fighting just go away. And what you're really doing is just kind of pushing it away and avoiding dealing with maybe what the issue may be that would lead to a healthier relationship. But that's what we tend to do sometimes. Maybe you're not a peacemaker, but you're a sulker. And so you're the one who just kind of, you, you feel the offense, you feel the frustration. Instead of dealing with it or having a conversation about it, you just kind of sulk. You just kind of manipulate your way through the situation, hoping that somebody's going to figure out that you're upset. And so everybody else around you is kind of walking around on eggshells, not sure really what's going on because we're not willing to communicate the issue that we're having or the issue that we're having with someone else. And we just kind of sulk in our frustration. Others of you, you're the, you're the stuffer. 
And so as, as the stuffer, you just uh, constantly push back the anger. You constantly push back the bitterness. You, you push back all the frustration that you're feeling and everybody's looking at you and they can tell that something's wrong. And when they ask you what's going on, you just say, nothing, I'm good. But if they could get inside your mind, there would be things going on in your mind that would need a seven second delay because there would need to be censorship with the things that you're thinking, but you're not willing to express what's really going on. Maybe you're not any of those. Maybe you are the litigator. You're the one who has become a professional at convincing everybody else around you when it comes to conflict that you didn't do anything wrong. And it's not because you don't want to admit that you're wrong, but you have really convinced yourself that you legitimately did not mess up. I tend to struggle with this. And I tend to, to, to convince myself sometimes that I didn't do anything wrong. Somebody just misinterpreted what I said and I didn't have any bad intentions. And it's a dangerous place to be. You begin to think, you know what? I'm just a blessing to live with. Everybody else is lucky to have a relationship to be in my family. And you're a difficult person to live with. And I say that because that's something that I struggle with. Maybe you're none of those, but maybe you're the screamer. And so when conflict arises in your life or in your household over this quarantine time, especially, it's all about volume. If I can be loud, if I can be demonstrative, then maybe I'm going to get my point across and I'm going to be able to fix this the way that I want it fixed. You know, it's interesting because oftentimes someone who's a screamer or was raised in a household of screamers will often marry someone who's not. And so when there's that first big massive argument, it's like shell shock for the other person. And they look at him and they think, man, he is or she is demon possessed. I don't know what has gotten into him. But the reality is, is that's just how they've always navigated conflict. We all struggle with it. It's something that every single one of us have issues with. And we don't always know how to navigate it well. But I do know this, that conflict is inevitable. Conflict is always going to happen. And so let's recognize and let's diagnose where does it come from and then how do we navigate and deal with it in the most healthy way. And to do that this morning, this afternoon, this evening, I want us to dive in to the, first, uh, the, the fourth chapter in the book of James. James is a book written by the half-brother of Jesus. He is uh, writing to followers of Jesus, people who have decided to place their, their faith in Jesus. And in that, he begins to give a lot of practical advice on how to live this faith out how to exercise the faith muscles in our life. Now, can you imagine being the half-brother of Jesus? You've probably got a lot of interesting perspectives. I mean, can you be, be, begin to just wrap your mind around the half-brother of Jesus, having to live in the shadow of Jesus, being the younger brother, trying to always live up to the standard that Jesus had lived, to measure up to who he was. I mean, he didn't complain about eating his vegetables. His furniture as a carpenter was always probably a little bit more perfect than yours. When he was drinking a glass of water, you're sitting over there wondering, is he drinking something that's maybe a little bit tastier than the water that I'm drinking because he has the ability to change that? I mean, can you just imagine? There was probably some anxiety that that caused. There was probably some envy, maybe even some jealousy and some frustration. There was probably some conflict. So James is writing this from a place where he understood conflict in the highest level. And he begins to press in on it. And he, it's, it's something that I think we can take a lot of understanding from today. Verse 1, he says this, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among, among you? So he asks a question. He says, what is the source of your fighting? What is the source of the quarrels and the conflicts? As you've been navigating the season, stuck at home with those that you're closest to, what is the source 
of the fighting and the arguing, not the source of the conflict. What is the source of the fighting? That is the question that he's asking. And I know for many of us, you think, well, what the source for my fighting, the source for the arguments that I find myself in, it's him or it's her. Or you think of a name, you're like, man, he's just ridiculous. He's always late. She's never on time. He's just a moron. We just think we want to point. We say he is the source. She is the source. And James is asking this question. He says, what is the source of the quarreling and the fighting? And then he continues on. He says, is not the source your pleasures that wage war on your members? It's interesting that he goes from something plural, the conflicts among you. It's, it's translated you all. In Texas, we say y'all. So he's saying, what is the source of the conflicts among y'all? But then he switches it in the very second part of that verse. He says, is not the source your he goes from plural to singular. Your pleasures that wage war on your members. You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You, do, you ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. James begins to press in a little bit, and he begins to expose something. He's saying this is why you're fighting and you're quarreling. This is why the conflict always gets to a place that's unhealthy. And he transitions it from who it is, an external thing. This is an external struggle that we have with other people. And he goes from external to internal. He wants us to see something, that there's an internal war that is raging in our lives. There's something going on inside of us. And it results in, he uses the word murder. Now he's writing to Jesus followers. He's, not, he's writing to people that probably aren't literally murdering each other. But it's a metaphor he wants us to recognize because it's, that's how destructive this raging, fighting, quarreling, argue, arguing can become in the relationships with those around us. So he wants us to pay attention to us and he begins to shine a spotlight on our passions, on my passions and your passions. And what he's pressing in on is when he says passions, he's saying the thing that you want the most, the thing that you desire the most, the thing that you run after every single day with everything that you are, you believe that you deserve it, you think that you're entitled to it, and you believe that if you didn't have it in your life, life would not be worth living. That's what he's describing when he starts to talk about our passions. You see, there's this civil war that's going on in our lives. Every single one of us struggle with this. It's part of our human DNA. We have this struggle. There's this void, and we're wanting to fill this void with something that we think is what we have to have in order to have life to the fullest. And so we chase after things. We chase after food and more food. We chase after drink and more drink. We chase after drugs and more drugs. We chase after sex and more sex. We chase after prosperity and more prosperity, property and more property, land and more land, authority and more authority, success and more success, popularity and more popularity. We chase after these things with all that we are, and that's what James is pressing into. He wants us to recognize this war that's raging on inside of us. We call it idolatry. And it's not the worship of this statue that sits on a shelf in our house. It's this pursuit of something at all cost. It's this idea that we elevate something in our life to the place where only God is supposed to sit. And then the conflict leads us to a place of fighting and arguing and quarreling. 
Because what begins to happen is we're chasing after this because of the war that's waging inside of us. We have to have it. And when somebody steps onto the scene, when somebody close to us begins to prevent us from having what we feel like we deserve or entitled to, a fight breaks out. Because we believe that they're robbing us from something that we feel like we deserve, from something that we're entitled to. This is what James is pointing out to us. You know, it's interesting, my very first job that I ever had getting out of high school, I worked at Cracker Barrel, which I didn't enjoy, I didn't like it. For some reason, people don't tip well at Cracker Barrel, but it was always interesting. People would sit down and they were always a little bit meaner until they had that plate of biscuits and cornbread with some jelly and some butter. It's interesting, until they had what they wanted, they were a little bit anxious, they were a little bit upset, they weren't as nice. I didn't have that cheese on my cheeseburger last night. And it made me grumpy. I felt like I deserved it. I felt entitled to it. It's what James is calling out in us. He's calling out this war and he's saying that we need something. And the truth is, is that we do need something. But oftentimes what we think we need isn't what we're chasing after. We're chasing after something that doesn't fill and fulfill the need in our life. And when somebody begins to take that away, we begin to fight. We begin to argue. We begin to have conflict. He continues on. In verse 4, he says, you adulteresses, that's a strong word. He says, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. But he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. It's interesting because what James is pressing in on is he's pressing in on this idea that there's this war raging inside of us. There's this internal problem, but he takes the internal problem and he points out to us that it's not just an internal problem with us. It's a theological problem. It's a problem that we are navigating because we are failing to recognize God as the ultimate in our life. God is the source for everything. God is the source for everything that is good and that is perfect. And so we run to everything, including our marriages, desiring that that's going to be what's ultimate for us in our lives. Gifts that God has given us, gifts that God created for good, but he never intended to be God's. We chase after these things. And what happens is ultimately a theological problem. And he points the idolatry to something similar to adultery. It's serious. You see, the reality is is that every single one of us are in pursuit of building a kingdom. It's either a kingdom for ourselves and our glory, or it's a kingdom for God and his glory. And when we mix that up and we try to build a kingdom for ourselves and for our glory in his world that he created for his glory, there's always going to be conflict. That's why he points us to the idea of adultery, the imagery of adultery. I mean, every single one of us understand that when we uh, say and commit to the vows that we speak on our wedding day, that marriage is for one person and one person alone. And nobody, nobody believes that when you vow to someone to spend the rest of your life committed to them only, when that person looks at you and says, I really don't want you to date somebody else, nobody thinks that that's foolish. Nobody thinks that's insane. We all would agree that that's appropriate. And it's the same idea that James wants us to understand is he's calling out the fighting and the quarreling that happens in our lives as a result of the conflict that takes place in our lives. It's not enough for us to jump onto a service in our homes this weekend 
and to worship God and to understand a little bit more about God and then go about the rest of our week pursuing our glory, our success, our authority, our wants, failing to recognize who he is, failing to recognize his kingdom and living for his glory instead. He's calling us out. And that creates a tension that we have to do something with. If, if I was to just stop and just say, hey, you know what? This has been a great message. Thanks, Wes, for exposing this and making me feel terrible. Um, it'd be kind of discouraging and disappointing. But James doesn't stop there. He says something specific in verse 7. He says, Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. So not only does he diagnose that there's something internally going on with us, there's something theological going on with us, but he gives us a diagnosis, but then he gives us a remedy. He gives us a step to take to find healing, to find reconciliation, to find restoration in our lives and in the relationships of those around us. He simply says, therefore, submit to God. Submit to God. What James is saying, he's saying, take on a posture of humility towards God. Why? Because in the verse just before that, he said that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. I don't know about you, but as I read that verse and I think about my marriage, I think about the relationships closest to me, I think about the relationships I have at work. There's nothing about me that thinks that there's anything good about God being opposed to my marriage or being opposed to the relationship I have with my kids or being opposed to the the relationships I have at work and in the community with my friends and my neighbors. And so the only way to guarantee that he's not opposed, that he is at work to do what only he can do in those relationships is to take on a posture of humility, to humble myself to God, to recognize his kingdom, to recognize his authority so that I will live for his glory. And when I do that, something begins to change when conflict comes into my life. And so what's cool when I think about this and I think about James writing this is James got to grow up with Jesus. He got to watch Jesus live his life. As we reflect on the life of Jesus, everything about the life of Jesus displayed humility. It displayed a a humble attitude, a humble way about living life, a humble posture towards those around him. And so as he's telling us this, he saw it in perfection. And so as we take a humble posture to God, what it actually does is it does what happens with Jesus. He not only had a humble posture with God, but he also had a humble posture with those around him. And so as we take that posture of humility, not only is it a posture of humility towards God, but it's a posture of humility towards those that are closest to us. I humble myself in my relationship with my wife and the relationship with my kids and those around me. And as I begin to take on that posture of humility, There's a few things that happen. So here's what I want you to do. I want to run through this list really quick of six things that happen as we take on this posture of humility. But here's what I want you to do. This is the homework for this week. Every single week we've had an assignment, a homework assignment. I think it's fitting in this time of quarantine. Everybody's homeschooling, so it's just perfect that we all have something we've got to accomplish this week. And it's not just to accomplish it, but God is working through this. Week one was this act of spiritual breathing. Week two was to spend uh, time encouraging your spouse or those closest to you with five encouraging things every single day for that week. Last week, Mark and Laura challenged us to spend time with God every single day. What I'm asking you this week is that we would all step into these six things as we take this posture of humility, as we navigate through these six things, that we would evaluate ourselves today. 
Spend some time today evaluating yourself on a scale of 1 to 10. On a scale of 1 to 10, how well am I doing at this? And then how well am I doing at this? So let me walk through them real quick. And then sometime today, spend some time evaluating. And then as you get to the end of this week, reflect back. Because I think as we evaluate, it gives us the opportunity to make adjustments and to fine-tune some things in our life. Not for perfection, but to make progress in our marriages and in the relationships of those around us. And so as we begin to take on this posture of humility, the first thing that begins to happen in our lives is we begin to overlook often. As we begin to take the focus off ourselves and begin to look at other people with humility, we begin to overlook some of the things that maybe cause frustration or disappointment in our lives. Proverbs 19 verse 11 says, A man's discretion makes him slow to anger, and, in, and it is his glory to overlook a transgression. I read this week an author named Paul Tripp. He says this, Trust doesn't demand perfection. Trust demands humility. I struggle with that because I am a natural critic. I, I, I can be overly critical about every little thing, and it frustrates me, but more than it frustrates me, it frustrates the people around me, because it not only frustrates them, but when I call out things that maybe I don't approve of, it makes them feel judged, it makes them feel unloved. It doesn't help the relationship dynamic to grow and to be more of what it is. And so in order to overlook some things, we've got to avoid some things. We've got to avoid the things that aren't immoral that aren't really that significant. Matters of personal preference, that's just kind of a, this random thing that they do and then we want to call it out. Sometimes it's better just to hold our tongue and say, hey, you know what, I'm not going to make a big deal of that. It's going to create some conflict for you and I, but it's in that moment that we have to say, you know what, it's not that big of a deal. I'm not going to make a big deal of it. Overlook anything that if you overlook it, it's not going to create some sort of bitterness towards someone in your life. So as you take on this posture, we begin to overlook certain things. We begin to overlook a lot of things. But not only do we overlook often, but we begin to show gentleness. Man, this is so important because so oftentimes when conflict arises, we want to be aggressive. We want to confront. Galatians 6.1 says, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. A few ways that you can show gentleness, some practical ways that you can do this is use I instead of you. For example, instead of saying, you hurt me, say, I was hurt by the comment that was made. It changes it. It takes the focus off of the person and maybe who they are or what they've done, and it puts them focused on your feelings. And there's a, there's a greater chance of empathy in that situation. Focus on the problem, not the person. We say this all the time here, even at Community Faith on our staff. I'll say things like, hey, we don't evaluate the person. We evaluate the performance because if we can disconnect those things, it doesn't feel judgmental. It doesn't feel like we're at a higher place than they are because we've taken on this posture of humility. Don't pile on. If he's late coming home from work, and he walks in the door and you're, you're, you're frustrated and there's reason to be frustrated. But oftentimes in those moments, it's, hey, I can't believe you're late. I can't believe you did this. You, are, you're, you're, you always come in the door. You always come in the door late. And then you put your shoes on the floor and you always leave your shoes on the floor. And then you leave your dirty clothes laying on the bathroom floor. You never do what you say you're going to do. And we just begin to pile on. And it doesn't do anything to, uh, to, to navigate away from the quarreling and the fighting. It just intensifies the fighting. And then be patient. To show gentleness means to be patient sometimes. My wife and I, nobody warned us of this when we got married, but we're both firstborns, which means we always think we're right. So oftentimes in conflict, we both get really frustrated with each other. And we've learned 
that one of the best things for us to do is just to take a step back and to be patient, let ourselves kind of rethink and let our minds settle a little bit before we have a conversation to fix maybe what's been wronged. And sometimes the best step we take is to just be patient, to not force reconciliation immediately, but to be gentle and to give some space and some time to reflect and think, to come back when, when um, we're not as elevated in frustration. The next thing is we take a posture of humility is simply this, to listen first. James 1, 19 through 20. Laura mentioned this a couple weeks ago. Be quick to hear, but slow to speak. It's so important that instead of seeking to be understood, we seek understanding. We want to understand more about how they feel. We want to understand more of why they're processing, why the way that they're processing. Another thing that I do often that maybe this is something you could step into this week is to simply not interrupt. Because when I interrupt what I'm telling my wife, what I'm telling my kids, those around me, is I'm saying I'm more important than you. What I believe and what I think is more important than what you believe or what you think. Oftentimes, we don't always know what to say, but we feel like we have to say something. And so it leads us to a place of some unhealthy conversation. So in those moments when you feel like you don't know what to say and you're trying to be a good listener, oftentimes when you don't know what to say, the best thing to do is just to repeat back to them what they just said. There's so much healing. There's so much value in them knowing that you heard what they said. You heard what they're feeling. And from that, you can begin to navigate in a more healthy way. I read this week that most communication problems are not expression, but result from poor listening. I think there's so much value in that. The next thing is simply this. To take a posture of humility with God means that we also take a posture of humility with other people, which leads us to a place to take ownership to own what we have, have done, to own the hurt that we have committed, the, the things that we have done to inflict pain or frustration in the life of someone else. There's so much power in an apology. Think about it this way. Think about it to admit, to apologize, and then to ask. To admit what I did wrong. To look at my spouse and say, I recognize that I did this and that it hurts you. And to be specific, because if you're not specific, it's not really clear that you know what you did. And if you don't know what you did, you don't know what you can do to fix what was done. And so for, there's so much power in just admitting specifically, this is what I've done to hurt you. And then begin to apologize specifically for what you did. And then to ask for forgiveness, which leads us to the next one. As we ask for forgiveness, we also should be quick to forgive. To forgive always. To take a posture of humility means that we forgive always. It's something that's so important, not just to our relationships, but to our faith. Colossians 3.13 says, Bear with one another, forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you. This is difficult. Because oftentimes when somebody has hurt us, we feel like they owe us something. But one thing that I've learned over the course of my life is just that oftentimes the more hurt that I feel, the less likely there is the opportunity for them to even repay me what was taken from me. And so what this passage and what scripture teaches us all throughout as followers of Jesus who have experienced forgiveness, we've been called to forgive. And I know that that feels weird sometimes, especially when it's really painful. But there's something supernatural in it. And it's not the call to be naive or easily manipulated. It's the call to let go of something that's actually continuing to cause you more pain. I've heard it said this way before, how long do you intend to carry the pain from your past into your future? 
oftentimes when the person that caused that pain never desired for you to continue to hurt. And so what oftentimes we've been called to do is to forgive. Secular psychologists say that unforgiveness leads to anxiety, high blood pressure, depression, weak immune systems, and poor heart health. There's something to this forgiveness. We were wired to, to forgive. We were wired to be forgiven. Forgiveness allows us to take the lessons from our past into our future without bringing the pain of our past into our future. There's something supernatural and powerful as we step in to forgiveness. And I just want to say this. Listen, there are times where forgiveness and conflict and arguments and ownership don't always result in something healthy. And so if there's something going on in your relationship, in your marriage, that you feel like you can't reconcile, that you've had conversations, you've had confrontation, you've tried to confess, you've tried to forgive, and you just don't feel like it's getting anywhere, it might be time to allow someone else's voice to sit in on a conversation, to seek professional help. If you're in a situation where you're experiencing physical pain, you're you're, you're experiencing financial loss, the relationships around you are being impacted because of this conflict with this particular relationship. That may be a red flag that, that it's time to find some other help. It's time to allow someone else to, just, to put their arms around you and be able to walk through this with you, to give you wisdom and counsel and insight. We have an incredible counseling center here that is available to do that for you. The last thing, as we take this posture of humility, we begin to focus on hope. As we take a posture of humility, recognizing that God is the ultimate authority, that he is ultimately in control, and I live for his purposes, for his kingdom, and for his glory, then I can't help but begin to focus on hope. As I take this posture, I begin to remember the cross. And I remember that the cross of Jesus paid for every wrong. It, prayed, it, it paid for everything that had been done to inflict pain and hurt in my life or that I had done to inflict pain in the life of someone else. It has been paid for. It has been made new. It has been reconciled. But then when I think about the resurrection of Jesus, and I think about the power that brought a dead man back to life, it gives me hope. And it reminds me that God's power can restore anything, including the relationships, those closest to me in my life. There's power and hope. I read about this legendary experiment this week that happened decades ago. And this specific scientist was doing a study to see how long rats could swim on their own without drowning. And so they would put rats in this water. And I know that sounds really morbid and kind of crazy, but it's, it's, it's insane to me, the results of this study. They would put these rats in the water and they would let them, let them begin to swim. And they decided to discover that rats could never swim more than 10 minutes without drowning. But then they would take the rats out of the water two or three times within that 10 minute window. And after they would put them back in there, after taking them out two or three times, they discovered that the rats could swim for up to 60 hours. With the introduction of hope, these rats were able to swim 100 times longer than they were before. There is power in hope. And as we take this posture of humility, we see that the hope is not something that we have to muster up on our own. We see that our hope comes from a man named Jesus, the half-brother of James, the author of the text that we read. And the call for us today in our relationships and in our lives personally is to simply submit, therefore, to God, to look to God for hope so that we don't have to give up. We don't have to give up in our relationships. We don't have to give up in our marriage. We don't have to give up in life. James is pointing us to Jesus because it's in Jesus that we find that hope. You know, it's interesting. I always think about this. 
and it blows my mind sometimes. Why did Jesus arrive on this earth and live the life that he lived the way that he did? I mean, why was he born in a stable? Why was he born in the most humble, um, simple circumstances? Living a, a, a simple life, the life of a carpenter, a carpenter's son. I mean, he experienced everything that you and I have experienced in our lives. He walked through conflict. He understood conflict with people. He navigated uh, the teenage life. He navigated adult relationships. He experienced conflict. He experienced the brokenness and the dysfunction that you and I experience every single day on this earth. And sometimes I think, why, why didn't Jesus just, just show up on this, this, uh, in this fighter jet, riding this Harley? Why didn't he fall from the sky as a superhero? Why did he arrive in the way that he did? I think what James wants us to recognize, because James recognized this, is that Jesus arrived as a humble servant to experience life as a human on purpose for you and me to rescue us from that dysfunction, from that brokenness, from the pain and the conflict in this world. But he did it in a way so that we could look at Jesus and know that he understands that because he lived through it. And he chose it on purpose so that we could have hope. We could have hope beyond ourselves. We could have hope for our lives. We could have hope for our relationships. If nothing else happens through this quarantine season, through this teaching series called In Sickness and Health, my prayer is that today we would remember, maybe even for the very first time, to simply submit to Jesus, to lay our lives down. Say, Jesus, it's for your kingdom and it's for your glory that I want to live because I've lived for my kingdom and my glory for far too long and it continues to come crumbling down. I have to build it back up only to see it crumble back down. And every time it crumbles down, there's more damage that's inflicted on my life and collateral damage on the lives of those around me. And so today, Jesus, I simply lay my life down and I trust you. I want to live for you and for your kingdom and for your glory because it's your hope that gives me confidence that things can begin to look different in my life. Teenage life, he ships. Will you pray with me? He experienced the broken you and I experience every single day. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you and for the truth why, that why it brings, this, the truth this, that it uh, gives us Harley, in our why lives. Did he fall for why did he arrive? And God, we're grateful that uh, you didn't just leave us on this earth to navigate he wants these us to messy times, Jesus' functional times times of conflict, but that you give us everything that to we need to get through that, on purpose through that for well. you and me to Not so that we can be seen, so that we can world. be honored or glorified, but so that you can be seen. And so right now, I pray specifically for those that look at Jesus and are sitting in a living room or a coffee shop or driving so down the road in a car watching on a phone. Wherever they are, wherever they're watching, I pray that if they are wrestling yeah, with that tension. Maybe they're sitting on the fence right Nothing now trying to decide, is it worth trusting you or is it worth um, trying to trust themselves? I pray that you would, you would pull them in close and that they would have confidence and that they would have the courage to simply lay their lives down and say, Jesus, I want you to be my boss. I want you to be my king. And God, as they begin to trust you, to lay our lives, begin to take on that posture of humility towards you, would you begin to work miracles in their lives in their marriages, in their relationships, and it continues would you begin to, to transform to things in them that they didn't more even know was possible? I pray that your work would, would, would be strong, that it would be evident, and it would be life-changing. Those around me, and so today, as we trust lay my life, I want to live for you. God, give us the courage and the strength to step into some of these things, to put into practice some of these things, to forgive well, because it's your to be hope, gentle, just to simply to love, but ultimately I pray that we would be able to hope you pray with me? and put our hope in you. And recognize that hope in you endures all things. God, we thank you for your word. We love you and we trust you in Jesus' name. Amen.
Listen, don't forget your homework this week. Take these six, six things, evaluate, and then go back and reflect this later this week and evaluate how, what's the progress looking like. As you take on this posture of humility towards Jesus, allow him to begin to work and to give you the strength and the courage to step in to some of these things. The early show is about to jump back on. Happy Mother's Day. We'll see you next weekend.